This episode of Case Acquaint contains disturbing and graphic material which may not be appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone. Welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 26. Update for this week. It's been six months since Peyton Field's death, so we expect Pender County Sheriff's Office to come out with a statement regarding the completed autopsy, which, you'll remember, he said he would receive within six months of her death. Now, on with today's program. Ogden is a Utah city located about 45 minutes from the state capital of Salt Lake City. For decades, Ogden was the second largest city in Utah, but as the suburbs of Salt Lake City also grew, they far outpaced Ogden in growth. So in recent times, Ogden has lagged behind these other growing suburbs. Ogden provides access to several excellent ski resorts, which are very popular with locals. Nearby is Hill Air Force Base, which is a major Utah employer. Our story takes place clear back in 1974, when Ogden was still one of Utah's largest cities. The Ogden LDS Temple had just been built, and life was good there, until one day the entire state was rocked by one of the most shocking series of events that to this day are in many ways unrivaled in their cruelty and viciousness. This is the story of the Hi-Fi Shop murders. On the unseasonably warm afternoon of Monday, April 22, 1974, two employees of the popular music and electronics store, the Hi-Fi Shop, were getting ready to close up for the night. The Hi-Fi Shop was located in the main shopping area of Ogden, alongside upscale dress shops, department stores, and fancy hotels. The shop was owned by a young businessman from an old Ogden family, Brent Richardson, and he had chosen the perfect location to showcase new technology in home and the quickly growing automobile stereo market. Stan Walker, 20 years old, and his co-worker Michelle Ansley, 18, were getting ready to close up for the night when some men entered the shop with guns drawn. Michelle was taken to the basement of the building where she was tied up. Stan was briefly held in the sound room on the main floor until another person arrived, a teenager named Courtney Nesbitt. Courtney was not a customer. He had simply parked his car in back of the building, and he was walking back through the store to thank Stan for letting him park there. Courtney, 16 years old, and Stan were immediately kicked down the narrow stairs to the basement. They were beaten and restrained. Stan and Michelle were, for the time being, placed lying down next to each other with their heads perpendicular to one wall, and Courtney was placed along the opposite wall. Then the men began to empty the shop of expensive audio equipment, and for the next hour or so, the three hostages quietly wondered if they're going to get out of there alive. At times, they would try to reason with the taller man who carried a thirty-eight revolver, but it was all to no avail. Who were these guys, they thought. Meanwhile, all three young people were expected at home. Courtney, 
a studious young man, had just that day flown his very first solo during flying lessons and was only supposed to be running a quick errand for his parents, Carol and Byron. He was planning on going straight home because he had to eat a quick dinner before heading back out for a night class. Stan was also expected at home, and like Courtney's mother, Stan's parents began to worry. As it grew later, both Carol Nesbitt and Stan's dad, Oren Walker, turned up at the hi-fi shop wondering why their children were still there. Both Carol and Oren, as they arrived, were taken down to the basement with the rest of the hostages. They were also placed on the floor, lying on their stomachs, and tied. Oren Walker insisted to their captors that if they finished robbing the store and left peaceably, everyone would promise not to identify the men. They were not, he said, interested in sending anyone to jail. They just wanted to go home. But Oren had gotten a good look at two of the men. Both were young and of African descent. One was short, standing only about five foot five, and he had a slight accent. He acted like he was the boss. The other was tall and appeared to be the follower. They were both worried about going to jail, they said. Plus, unbeknownst to Oren, they were prepared for a situation in which they may need to make sure they couldn't be identified. Unbeknownst to all the victims, these two young airmen from Hillhurst Base had no intention of allowing any of these people to walk out alive. They had a plan they'd recently hatched, which included elements gleaned from a movie they had just seen. In the movie, entitled Magnum Force, a pimp who believes he caught a prostitute withholding money from him pours drain cleaner down her throat. She's dead within seconds. So, to the two airmen, that seemed like an excellent and efficient way to ensure success if anything went wrong during the robbery. While preparing for the heist, they stopped and bought a big bottle of Drano. They'd planned this robbery for some time, and in their minds, they were well prepared. So when Oren Walker arrived and was taken downstairs, the tall man poured the suspicious-looking liquid out of a large bottle into a cup and handed it towards him, telling him to drink. But Oren refused. So with that, they tied up Oren and put him on the floor. And after her arrival, Carol Nesbitt was placed on the floor next to her son Courtney, and at that point, the savage torture of five innocent people began. You had Oren Walker, Carol Nesbitt, both parents looking for their children. You had Stan Walker, who was a worker, and Michelle Ansley, who was also a worker at the hi-fi shop. And then you had Courtney, who was just passing through. Carol Nesbitt was the first to be forced to drink and she immediately began to cough, choking on the caustic liquid as it burned everything it touched. Drano shot out her nose and mouth as she tried to breathe. Her son, Courtney, was next. He too was forced to drink. Some spilled over his face, burning the skin, but with his hands and feet tied, and with a strong hand encircling his neck, holding his head steady, he automatically swallowed. He could feel his entire insides being burned. Vomiting provided no respite. The damage was already being done. Then the tall man turned to Stan and Michelle, who were forced to drink out of the cup in succession with similar results. 
Oren Walker was last. He had seen what happened to everybody else, so when he was raised in a sitting position to drink, he pretended to swallow, cough, spit, and convulse like he'd seen his own son and the others do. When he was lowered back down to the floor, though, he allowed the bulk of the Drano to leak out and burn the side of his mouth. The short bossy man, ever observant, decided Oren needed more Drano, so he made him drink another cup. Both assailants were disappointed that these people weren't dying the same way the movie prostitute died. Weren't they supposed to die without making a bunch of noise? The prostitute didn't spit out any Drano. Why were they spitting the Drano out, necessitating the two captors to dodge flying drops of the caustic substance? Then, the bossy man had what he thought was a brilliant idea. He found some masking tape and he tried to seal their mouths with it to ensure no Drano escaped their throats. But the tape wouldn't stick to the Drano covering their now blistering and oozing faces and lips. By now, some victims were barely breathing and a foamy substance began to form deep inside their bodies as the Drano ate away at their insides. Both killers climbed back up the stairs for the time being, helping to empty the store. After a few hours, the two men lumbered back down to the basement and stole money, jewelry, and other belongings from the people on the floor. They began to bicker about what they were going to do with their victims. The taller killer told the short bossy killer that he wasn't going to do anything more to the already dying victims because he was, as he put it, scared. He bounded up the stairs and the short man was creeping around the room in the dark. He knelt next to Carol Nesbitt and shot her in the back of the head with his revolver. Next, he shot Courtney in the same general area of his head. After that, he walked over to Oren Walker, pointed the gun towards Walker's head, and shot. The bullet hit the carpet next to Walker and ricocheted off the wall. Stan Walker was next, and he received a bullet to the back of his head. Then the man walked across the room and proceeded up the stairs. He needed to reload his gun. When he came back, he returned to Oren Walker, shooting again and this time not missing Walker's head. The only person left was Michelle, and of course the killer had plans for 18-year-old Michelle. She was taken to another room and viciously raped over the course of about 20 minutes. After he was finished raping Michelle, he allowed her to use the bathroom while he watched. Then he dragged her naked back to the room, during which time Michelle begged one last time to be spared, crying, I'm too young to die. She was made to lie down next to Oren Walker. Realizing Walker was not yet dead, the man attempted to strangle him with his bare hands. After a while, he got tired and stopped. Then a shot rang out, and Michelle could be heard moaning slightly, until she became silent. Finally, the killer found an electrical cord which he tried to use to strangle Oren Walker again, pulling it tight around Walker's neck. Walker tightened his neck muscles and remained limp as if he was unconscious. He was lowered back to the floor and lay on his side. Next, he felt something being pushed in his ear before he saw one foot disappear from the floor in front of him while a ballpoint pen was stomped into his ear by the killer's foot three times. And then the two men, 
who had spent the better part of several hours torturing, raping, and shooting their captives, were gone. They'd stolen approximately $25,000 worth of equipment. As the night wore on, Oren Walker's wife and teenage son arrived looking for both Oren and Stan. They rang the buzzer at the locked back door. Oren began to yell, telling whoever was at the door to call the police. His son, recognizing his dad's voice, kicked in the door. Miraculously, Walker was conscious and lucid, despite the torture he had endured. He'd been shot, burned with Drano, strangled, lynched, and finally, there is a pen still stuck in his ear. But due to its position, the pen was stomped down into his neck. Despite all of his injuries, Oren Walker was trying in vain to save his son Stan's life when his wife and other son arrived at the hi-fi shop. When the police and ambulance arrived, they made him stop. Stan was gone. As they made their way around the room, the first responders discovered that Michelle was also dead. Courtney and his mother, Carol, were barely clinging to life. They were quickly loaded up and transported to the hospital. Meanwhile, word was getting out as police put out a be on the lookout for two black males driving a cargo van. The hospital, knowing they were getting emergency cases, began to contact their on-call staff. Byron Nesbitt, who was Carol's husband and Courtney's father, was on call, but he was a gynecologist and an obstetrician. Still, he received a phone call about the emergency, and when he found out that something had gone down at the hi-fi shop, he froze. While he hoped he was wrong, he felt sure Courtney and Carol had been involved in whatever had happened down there. He drove to the hi-fi shop immediately. When he got to the parking lot, his fears were confirmed when he saw the police and his family's cars parked in the back parking lot. Byron quickly made contact with the county prosecutor, who was already present to watch police process the scene. They were friends. The prosecutor told him to head straight to what was then called St. Benedict's Hospital because his family members had already been transported. At the emergency room, staff attempted to triage. By the time Byron made it there, Carol was dead, and she had been moved to the morgue to await an autopsy. Courtney was in the ICU, but they were still not sure what they were dealing with. Medical staff had heard that he had swallowed some sort of acid. He was intubated, and they were doing everything they could to get air past the damaged tissue and caustic liquid that was still burning the interior of his body as they tried to wash it with alcohol. Walker was also being treated. He was ambulatory, conscious, and giving police all the information he could about what had occurred that night. He described the two young men as black with short afros. They were driving a light-colored van, he said. Now, Ogden was a large city at the time for a state like Utah, but it was still a smaller city by normal standards. The homicide detectives were familiar with almost anyone who may have been suspected of this type of behavior. Before the hi-fi murders, Weber County only had one open homicide case. It was the killing of Air Force Sergeant Ed Jefferson, who was found in his off-base apartment murdered by a bayonet in October of 1973. During the investigation of that murder, the detectives found through questioning of other servicemen that Jefferson had caught one Dale Selby Pierre 
in a bizarre ruse. Pierre had stolen the keys to Jefferson's apartment in his automobile and made duplicates. Pierre later returned to quote-unquote help Jefferson look for the keys, and at that point, he claimed to have found them. Jefferson, who was suspicious of Pierre from the beginning, had the apartment locks changed as well as the ignition to his car. When Jefferson was found dead having been stabbed several times in the head and face, investigators were shocked by the brutality of the attack. On the first stab, the bayonet was driven through his eye socket and through his brain and then had fractured the inside of the skull on the other side. The unnecessarily repeated stabs denoted a calculated form of rage. So all of the evidence and all of the other airmen who knew Jefferson pointed to a young airman named Dale Selby Pierre. Unfortunately, they didn't have enough evidence to charge him, and the case was ongoing with not much hope of resolution. Could one of the perpetrators of this hi-fi shop crime be the same person who killed Jefferson? It seemed far-fetched, but then again, they knew very few people of that description and with those violent capabilities who were also currently residing in the area. Pierre was said to be a bit of a loner. The other airmen didn't like him. In fact, they claimed to openly avoid him. One airman actually shook with fear when he told investigators that he was afraid to talk about Pierre because he didn't want a bayonet shoved through his own eye socket. 19-year-old Dale Selby Pierre, who was originally from Trinidad, joined the Air Force in May of 1973, but soon realized he didn't like being told what to do and had trouble controlling his temper. When the hi-fi shop murders occurred, he was in the process of transitioning out of the Air Force. So was his friend, William Andrews. Now, Andrews was also 19, and he had been well-liked by others until he became friends with Pierre. After the two started hanging out, other service members began to steer clear of Andrews. Andrews had also recently realized a deep disappointment in the Air Force and was also attempting to separate himself. Back at the hi-fi shop where police continued to search for evidence, the two remaining bodies were collected. Because of the large amount of Drano in, on, and around those bodies, staff had to protect themselves with extra heavy gloves. They found both 38 caliber slugs stuck in the shag carpet and 25 caliber cartridges strewn about. As the police mobilized their investigation, as the night turned into day, putting out bulletins to other agencies and responding to media inquiries, life went on for those who were unaffected by this heinous tragedy. Across the valley, two young boys who lived on Hill Air Force Base were looking for empty soda bottles in one of the many barracks dumpsters. These bottles could be turned in for between 5 and 15 cents for every bottle, so it was a common pastime for kids everywhere back then. On this day, while they were scavenging inside a dumpster for bottles, the two boys found something else. To their surprise, they found a purse. Then they found another one. Inside was some change and a credit card. This was much more exciting than looking for bottles, so the search shifted to a hunt for more personal effects. They came up with a checkbook, more credit cards, personal pictures, driver's licenses, some keys, cosmetics, and finally, 
some wallets with what appeared to be blood on them. The young boys decided these items must have come from a robbery. A young airman saw them struggling to haul all these things around, and he offered to help. Between the three of them, it was decided that the airman would call the phone number listed on the book of checks. Michelle Ansley's family had already been notified of her murder, so accordingly, they were immediately aggressive in their line of questioning when the young airman called the number he found on the checkbook. After a brief interrogation in which the man expressed that he was only helping two young boys who found Michelle's checkbook, they all mutually agreed to each contact police. So this airman contacted the airbase police, and before long, the investigation migrated to Hill Air Force Base. At about the same time, all points bulletins were going out all over the local media, asking the public to call police if they saw two black men, one tall, one short, driving a light-colored van. As the media picked up the story, a call came in to the police department, which was routed to the investigators assigned to the case. A young man had a story to tell. He told the officer that he believed he knew who the two guys were. They were fellow airmen who had been bragging about their recent robberies and had also talked about planning to rob the hi-fi shop. Pierre Dale Selby, the clear leader of the duo, announced he didn't intend to leave any witnesses. He was short and bossed the other one around. The airman also said he didn't think William Andrews, the taller of the two, would kill anyone, but he was sure the other guy, Pierre, would not hesitate to kill a witness to one of his crimes. He also shared that Andrews drove a light blue van with mag wheels. The airman provided the barrack room numbers for both Pierre and Andrews. And with that, not even one day after three people were murdered and two injured, police had a large number of leads to examine in order to close their newest case. As more detectives learned about the information provided by the recent caller, they started putting more pieces of the puzzle together, and they realized they were probably going to be able to close a few of their cases as well. There was Jefferson's murder, which Pierre had already been a suspect in, and there were several car thefts, and one of which was exceptionally brazen in nature, just as the Hi-Fi Shot murders and the Jefferson murder. In January of 1974, an airman had been caught stealing a 1973 Corvette from a local car lot. He'd taken the car for a test drive, and while gone, he'd had some extra keys made. As that investigation unfolded, Pierre had been identified as the suspect, and when he was arrested, they found other sets of keys to other stolen cars in his pockets. In all, he caught charges for three stolen cars. Because he was in the Air Force, he was released on a $2,500 bond. So, now the police had the following information on Pierre. He was a suspect in a prior murder. He'd already been charged in the theft of three automobiles. He'd been implicated in other robberies and he had also now been implicated as participating in and possibly even planning the Hi-Fi Shot murders, which to this day is recognized as one of the most heinous crimes perpetrated in the state of Utah ever. Oren Walker was shown a photo lineup, and he immediately identified Pierre as the short man, and the man who violently raped Michelle Ansley, and had also shot all five victims. 
three detectives had been sent out to gather the found items from the barracks dumpsters. These officers were not aware of the phone call from the informant or anything else about known suspects. All they knew is that they need to pick up this particular evidence and bring it back for processing. Remember, this is 1974. They didn't have cell phones and they had to be very careful about what they said on the radio. So these detectives were combing through every inch of the dumpster so they wouldn't miss any bit of evidence. And while they were doing that, they noticed they were being watched from one particular window of the barracks. Meanwhile, Ogden Police Department and the Air Force Security communicated with one another about the possible locations of the suspects. The Air Force Security knew Pierre very well. For months, they'd been working on getting him kicked out of the military because he was nothing but problems. They knew about the Jefferson murder and the other crimes allegedly committed by Pierre. Air Force investigators were facing the same problems most police face. It was hard to get people to talk. So they'd spent a good amount of time worrying about who Pierre would kill next. Until then, they were trying to get him discharged over the car theft charges. Surprisingly, however, as soon as Pierre was released on bond for the car thefts, he requested an early discharge himself. Maybe he knew they were going to give him an undesirable discharge anyway, so he was trying to get it done his own way without being labeled. It would have worked if he wouldn't have continued to commit crimes. At the time, Andrews also requested to separate from the Air Force. While the paperwork was being processed, the two were assigned to things like cleaning and mopping. Even with the reduced expectations and time commitment, Pierre and Andrews still refused to perform. They were defiantly a thorn in the sides of their commanders and the Air Force security. So, in cooperating with the Ogden Police Department's investigation, the Air Force security pulled out the records for Pierre and Andrews' comings and goings from the base. It showed that neither of them had been around at all on Monday night, and they hadn't returned to base until Tuesday morning. They came and went as if nothing was amiss. But by Tuesday evening, all of the warrants for the arrest were in place. Pierre and Andrews were both arrested without incident only a little more than 24 hours after they began murdering their hi-fi shop victims. The next thing to do was figure out what happened to the equipment they stole. They found none of it as they searched Andrews and Pierre's rooms in the barracks, but what they did find when they pulled up the carpet of Pierre's room was an envelope containing a storage unit rental agreement from a place located quite near the hi-fi shop. Upon gaining access to the storage unit, the police predictably found the stolen equipment and they also found one of the most important pieces of evidence in the entire case. The bottle of Drano used by Andrews and Pierre to torture the hi-fi shop victims. At the hospital, even though Courtney was in and out of consciousness, at some point his dad was able to talk to him one time as the medical staff could take Courtney off the respirator for 15 minutes every day. Even though his throat was severely damaged and he was on all sorts of medication, he managed to whisper to his dad that there were three men who robbed the store and two of the three had guns. Then it appeared that Courtney realized what had ultimately happened and his face suddenly went blank. He became catatonic. 
Courtney Nesbitt would never again be capable of recalling a detail about that evening. Doctors couldn't explain the sudden ability to recall details nobody else knew, and they also couldn't explain the sudden catatonic state that ensued. One fact was indisputable. Courtney Nesbitt's life was immeasurably impacted by the torture he didn't seem to recall, but the pain and suffering could never be ignored, or in the end, forgotten. Also, it wasn't just the lack of memory. This young boy's mind shut down. He had a moment of lucidity after being shot in the head and had his insides eaten away, and don't forget witnessing the torture and murder of his own mother. It was as if some of the brain damage he suffered was permanent, but the full effects were not felt until some time after. It's never been explained why or how. And the truth is, there was at least one more man involved. It wasn't just two men. Police to this day suspect there were up to six men involved, but they could only convict three. Courtney's story of recovery could not even begin for months and months because the process of healing was almost insurmountable for a body that had suffered the damage Courtney's body had suffered. But they never gave up. Now, Carol Nesbitt was a wonderful wife and mother. Her family and friends were proud to know and love her. Not long before her brutal murder, she had stated that she didn't want an open casket funeral because she didn't want anyone to see her dead. Many people are not comfortable with that. They want what they believe is a traditional funeral for their loved one, and in some areas, an open casket funeral is a tradition. Also, it's been said that while we have funerals to honor our late friends and family members, these funerals are, in essence, for those who are left behind. They're designed to provide as much comfort to them as possible. So Carol's announcement ended up causing great agony for her family. They knew that she only wanted to be remembered as being in her normal, perfect state. But they felt they needed to make sure family had an opportunity to see her just one last time. So Byron chose to allow her casket to be kept open for family and closed for friends and well-wishers. Yes, there were imperfections that could be seen, of course. Her head was swollen from the blast to the back of it. In addition to the swelling, there were stitches that could be seen from the removal of her brain for the autopsy. Also, it was going to be impossible to cover up the burns on her lips and skin from the Drano. Carol, like Courtney, had suffered before she died. She was made to drink a full cup of Drano and endured untold pain with every movement and breath until she was shot in the back of the head. That shot did not kill her immediately. Her labored breathing could be heard for hours until she was pronounced dead at the hospital. But Byron had to make a decision, and he made the decision that he thought would best help his family honor the reality of what his wife suffered in her last hours. I just have to stop and ask, how in the hell could these people run in and out of that room over the course of the night, listening to all these innocent people slowly die in one of the most agonizing deaths imaginable? Clearly, 
they didn't care about the pain and suffering they were inflicting, and in fact, it even appears Pierre found it satisfying. So much so that he took a half an hour to inflict further torture on young Michelle by raping her repeatedly and also brutalizing her in other ways we won't mention. But it's clear he relished what he did to that young lady. Orrin Walker, the only survivor of this tragedy who could testify against the killers, was discharged from the hospital just in time to attend the funeral of his beloved son, Stan. While he was tortured mercilessly by a gunshot to the head, physical brutality, strangulation, a failed lynching, the forced Drano drinking, and of course, the pen stomped repeatedly and violently into his ear. He was alive and fully capable of providing details to authorities and ultimately testifying against the killers. Courtney Nesbitt did live until the age of 40, but many of his loved ones said his struggle for life was torturous for a very long time, not months, not even years, but decades. His dad said, I don't think anyone will ever know what torment my son had to go through physically and mentally. I don't think anybody's ever going to know that. They talk about stress. When you're all burned out inside and your head is all shot up and your body, every system has been damaged, I don't know how in the hell anyone can figure that it's not stressful. Then they took him to surgery at McKay to dilate his esophagus and they perforated it. They went right through it. And from then on, there was no more esophagus. It was all hyperalimentation. And with hyperalimentation, they were feeding him all of his sugar. When they cut him open, they did a biopsy on his liver. And it was fatty degenerated. It couldn't hack all the sugar. His guts were inflamed. And they got adherent and masked together. They were taking quarts of stuff out of his chest just so he could breathe. He had high fevers every day. Tachycardia off the chart short of breath, sicker than hell. He was sick like that for six weeks. See, you got your lung down. You're just short of breath anyway. You can't breathe. You've got infection all over hell. Your heart's going about two or three times normal speed. And this goes on day in and day out. And your fever's going up and up and down and up. Where do you run out of reserve? I'm telling you, all of his systems had just been shot to hell and I don't understand. Any one of the things that he had could have killed him. Any one of them. Any time in there, he could have gone any minute. It was just one thing after another, and I didn't see how anybody could keep up under that kind of program for week after week, month after month. I thought he was going. If he was going to die, that's when I thought he was going to die. It was October before Courtney was transferred to the rehab wing of the hospital. There, he learned how to do normal things he used to take for granted, like getting in and out of bed and feeding himself. Courtney became a combative and difficult patient for a number of reasons. He sustained a head injury from the gunshot. He was also in constant pain. In addition to the physical trauma, in addition to the physical trauma he continued to suffer from, he was greatly traumatized emotionally. He didn't have the energy or the motivation to work hard at recuperating. Still, it was agreed that it was a miracle he was even alive at that point. Now, 
The trial began in November. Oren Walker was the star witness. Byron Nesbitt testified to Courtney's injuries and their impact on himself and the family. The defendant, Dale Pierre, was disgusted. He felt Nesbitt's testimony seemed rehearsed. Pierre said he talked about his son couldn't eat or something and he'd pause on just the right words while he was talking. Two or three of the jurors were looking at me like they were going to kick my ass or something. It was obviously rehearsed. You could tell it. Any novice in the courtroom could tell. I thought it was gross myself. Both Pierre and Andrews were sentenced to death, and on that day, Courtney Nesbitt was released from the hospital. While the Nesbitts had excellent health insurance, it didn't cover anywhere near all the costs associated with Courtney's progress over the years. Byron paid for other services like occupational and speech therapy, to name a couple. The Nesbitts handled the issue of Carol's murder and Courtney's near murder and eventual death as a result of his injuries in their own ways, but they also used their closeness as a family to share a unified perspective. They understood that Carol had been murdered, that Courtney had been forever scarred in too many ways to list by someone else, but they were grateful that the main perpetrators had been caught. They put their faith in the justice system to take care of determining guilt and then punishing the killers. They tried very hard to remain as positive as they could, and they relied heavily on their Mormon faith. Several years after the murders, while Pierre and Andrews were on death row, one of Courtney's brothers said, I live with rules and regulations, and I'm willing to do that here. Even though there are only 12 people on the jury, everybody in society lives by their rules, and therefore, they take their proportionate part of the responsibility, and I'm willing to do that, so if they get the death penalty, fine. If they don't get the death penalty, that's fine with me too. Years later, Courtney could only recall a few details about the night of the hi-fi shop murders. He remembered being confronted by a man. He remembered being tied up on the floor of the basement, and he remembered hearing his mother's voice when she arrived asking where he was. As time went on, it was agreed that Courtney would never be the same as he was before. He could no longer effectively cope with everyday stressors. But he never stopped trying to improve his life and make progress. Most people are surprised he even made it through that ordeal physically, never mind mentally. The Walker family was, of course, also severely impacted by the murder of Stan the attempted murder of Oren, and for them, the trial and sentencing was particularly traumatic. Unlike the Nesbitts who chose to quickly move on, the Walkers were called on for more testimony and it's largely accepted that Oren's ability to recall specific details were indispensable to the prosecution. So much so, in fact, that the trauma continued during the sentencing phase when William Andrews angrily raised his fist to the Walker family when his sentence was announced. Oren Walker said his wife was never the same. Michelle Ansley's family was obviously devastated by her loss, by losing her in such a despicable way. Having to listen to the factual recounting of how Michelle begged for her life 
humbly complied with the brutal rape, was forced to use the bathroom while being watched, and then violently shot. Must have been a nightmare for the Ansley family. In response to one of William Andrews' petitions to the Utah Board of Pardons, Michelle's mom had this to say, Let him join his companion in hell. Dale Pierre was executed by lethal injection in 1987. He argued that he didn't technically kill anyone since the Drano hadn't had a chance yet to fully kill everyone before Pierre put them out of their misery by shooting them in the head. He figured that because of that, he didn't deserve the death penalty. The Board of Pardons disagreed, and he was also executed through lethal injection in 1992. The third man who was charged in association with these crimes was Keith Roberts. It could never be proven that he participated in the murders, and it was determined by a court of law that he was only driving the van. He maintained that he hardly participated in any of the events. Spent a few years in prison and was paroled. Now, this case was not covered much by national media at the time, during different hearings later on, it was picked up as a national story because Utah was preparing to execute two black men, and the public had already been monitoring Utah for the LDS Church's now sort of defunct odd beliefs about race. Activists called attention to the punishment of Pierre and Andrews, but the story of the victims didn't get much attention until a book was written about the case and this detail is why we decided to bring this story to you today. This book was one of the very first ever written with the focus on the victims rather than killers. That is not to say the author, Gary Kinder, didn't address the killers. He did. In his book, Victim, The Other Side of Murder, he talked about how he developed a rapport with Pierre, exchanging hundreds of letters with him. And he also traveled to Trinidad to learn more about Pierre's troublemaking past. Pierre expected compensation for his letters, but he never received any. Some of the quotes that were used in this episode were actually provided to Kinder for his book, and he interviewed the Nesbits extensively. It's a very well-researched book. It provides a lot of great information, and if you're interested in reading more about the case, we would encourage you to check out that book. And also, you can find old newspaper articles in the archives of the Deseret News, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Ogden Standard Examiner. When a loved one is murdered through the violence of another human being, each and every person must find a way to deal with this loss and with the pain that may never leave. On this program, we're always interested in pointing out the various strategies that work for some people. Sometimes people do extraordinary things not because they want to, but because they have to, and that can serve to make the responses even more extraordinary. Every one of them different, and every one of them new and possibly helpful for others to learn from. For those remaining loved ones of the victims of this tragedy, we wish them peace. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. <laughs>